right, so John 12. We're going to get into it. Here's what's going to happen. Um, Lazarus has been raised. The, um, the high priest, you heard last week from Johnny Russell. Listen, by the way, if you didn't listen to Johnny, if you weren't here last week, get on the podcast, listen to Johnny Russell. Here are a couple things I figured out. One, it's not that you don't have a sense of humor. I think it's I'm not funny. Um, Because I heard Johnny, and you people, you laughed. You betrayed me when I'm gone, all right? So I know he's funny and witty and all that stuff, but, you know, for crying out loud. Um, But he did a great job. Oh, my goodness, he did a great job. And he, um, as an elder of this church, he was a great elder last week as he stood up here. And so, uh, and we have a gaggle of great elders here at Bethel. And I'd love for you, um, if you weren't here, um, do yourself a favor and listen to, to what he had to say. But So he's telling us, uh, so, so we looked at it last week, the, the high priest said, oh, you know what, we've got to kill Jesus because one man has to die because uh, it's better than the whole nation dying. And he didn't realize how prophetic he was. And so in chapter 12, what happens is there's going to be a party because it's like a welcome home from the dead party for Lazarus. Uh, only person that's ever got to have that party. And um, then what's going what's gonna to happen is that, so then they're going to have the triumphal entry, you know, the, the Palm Sunday day. Then some Greeks, some Gentiles are going to show up. And they're going to say, hey, can we, can we come to Jesus? And then after that, what you'll see is then there's going to be these prophecies that Jesus will state from Isaiah that are being fulfilled in his ministry. And then there's this sort of wrap-up of um, what Jesus has come to do. The first 12 chapters of John, you might think of it this way. It's called uh, the, the Book of Signs, or, or the Gospel of Signs. So there are seven signs, seven miracles Jesus does in these first 12 chapters. And that's not the only miracles he does. I mean, John says, if you wrote down everything Jesus did, there's not enough pages and enough books in all the world to fill it. But he highlights these seven. Then from chapter 13 to chapter 21, you, it's like two halves. This is, so this is the gospel of signs. It's a three-year time period-ish of Jesus' ministry. The last bit of it all takes place in about six to eight days. And you call it the book of passion or book of glory. Because it's the preparation of Jesus going to the cross, the, the last night with the disciples, beginning in chapter 13, all the way to his arrest, burial, and resurrection, and the crucifixion and resurrection. And so you, you have this three years, and then you have this six days. And John's about to slow things down for us because he wants us to peer into it. In fact, we get the time marker here right at the beginning of chapter 12. So look with me in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Now, you don't know it here, but from the other gospel accounts, you find out that the home that they're in is actually not Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' home. The home they're in is a, is a man... Um, who, who's hosting them, he's known as Simon the leper, although he's not a leper anymore. But he was a leper. And Jesus healed him. And now he's hosting this party in his honor. And the reason is because 
Lazarus is they're not having a funeral, they're having a, a feast. And so you have, I mean, just think about this. You have at this dinner Simon, who used to be a leper, whose life is saved, essentially. He's been brought back from the dead. And Lazarus, who's literally been brought back from the dead. And I mean, they're having a party. And then he says at the beginning, it's six days before the Passover, the third Passover we've been alerted to in John's Gospel, because this one's the Passover. You know what else he's saying? It's six days before Jesus is going to die. And Jesus is aware of it. And nobody else is. They know Passover's coming, and they know they've been at Passover with Jesus before. And I mean, you know, he throws over some tables. People don't like him. I mean, you know, you get into a little Passover scuffle. They weren't, they didn't imagine that he was the sacrifice. Even though in many ways he had already been telling them that he was. You know, it's interesting. It's the last six days of what I would call a Genesis 3 world. Like what? And what I mean by that is, so if you went to the beginning of John, remember we looked at John 1 and 2 and we were back there and we said, hey, John begins with the six days after he's announced that Jesus was and is and, and always, you know, was God. And, and then, before, you know, nothing was created that wasn't created by him. And then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and that Jesus is God and he is the creator and he is the one who's come to be in our midst and then John does this thing and he gives us the first six days of Jesus ministry and then on the seventh day the beginning of chapter two it, which is he also calls on the third day it's not a day of rest the day of new creation he doesn't rest, he works, and he changes the water to wine, and then he's going to go through and do a series of seven signs. And here there's six days, and what happens on the seventh day is a rest of sorts, but it's, a, it's the rest of death. To lay in a grave on that Sabbath, be raised the next day, and a new creation starts all over. This is the end of the Genesis 3 world while death Reigned, And even though it had been served notice at Lazarus' grave, death technically still reigns here. And for death to be defeated and the ruler of the world to be dethroned, the hero of the story, he's going to have to die. And he's going to say it. Listen, I'm the, I'm the grain of wheat that's got to fall into the earth and die. The light of the world is going to have to step into the hour of darkness word that became flesh and dwelt among us, the word, that to breathe his last and be laid in the dust. And that's what John's preparing us for. And notice in verse 3, here is where the first contrast comes. Mary, or so Mary, or therefore Mary, took a pound of, and then he's going to start piling on adjectives, a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. 
But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, well, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself with what he put in it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you'll always have with you, but you do not always have me. See, what makes this verse so remarkable is what it's contrasted with. It's contrasted. So here's the chapter. It opens up. Here's the welcome home from death party, right? And you know, that, listen, if there was ever to be a party, that's a party. You know, the celebration end all celebrations. And yet Mary, she's not captivated by it. The, the meal, the celebration, all of that. I mean, there's something weighing on her. She's feeling something greater. I mean, greater than just gratitude. Greater than just, hey, my brother was dead and now he's alive. I mean, there's something going on. And I don't even think she knows fully what it is. She's drawn to do something that Jesus is recorded saying in the other Gospels? Every time the Gospel is proclaimed, this will be remembered. Something like that. See, the picture John paints in this verse, he, he wants us to fully engage all our senses, all our emotions, wants our interest to be peaked in the in the midst here of this, she enters with a pound of expensive perfume made from pure nard. I mean, the perfume, it's, it's a pound, it's expensive. And Judas tells us it's a whole year's salary. It's pure, genuine, authentic, unadulterated. It's, I mean, so it's enough. Think about it. It's enough. It would have lasted her a lifetime. But now and then, once a year, once every two years, you know, Christmas or birthday, my wife will get I'll, you know get this nice perfume. Nice, I, I don't know, yeah. expensive for me. And she rations it, you know. It's certainly not a pound, I can tell you that. And she rations it, so, so and she and like it when she wears it. She smells good, and when you think about this, this is this is pure. For the last of her lifetime. You know what it would have said every time she had it on? She would have come and people would have thought things like, oh, it's a high class woman. The scent, the aroma, there's beauty in that. It's part of her identity, I think. I mean, no, she puts it on and she's she's somebody. I mean, you know, she smells like money. You know, I mean, she's not. She's not one of the poor class, even though she may be, but she has this. I don't know where she got it. Maybe, maybe it was passed down from the family. It's just rare. It would have come from India. I mean, it would have been worth more than anything in her life. It could have been used as a dowry to gain a husband, which in that day was so important. And John is going to paint this picture, and she comes in. You find it's in an alabaster jar from the other Gospels, and she brings it in, and she breaks it open. It can never be put back in. Taking the Gospel accounts and putting it together, she, she anoints him from head to toe. 
while the other gospel writers are focusing on Jesus as king and the anointing of the head, John moves the lens over and shows us kind of the rest of the She bends down and undoes her hair, her glory. She gets on her hands and feet and she does what only the lowliest of lowly servants would do, and that is to care for a master's feet. No one wanted that job. In fact, that's the reference when John the Baptist will say in chapter 1, you know, where they say, oh, John, you're so great. And he goes, no, I'm not great. Jesus is great. In fact, he's so great, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And here she is on her knees and face down in her hair, and she's, she's drying his feet with her hair. The whole place smells of perfume. You know, and it's not the kind of perfume that just goes away after a day. Six days from now when Jesus is beaten beyond recognition, the scent would have still been in the air. By the time John writes the gospel, the other two accounts have already said, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she's done will be told of her. Here, John gives us her name. To say that Mary humbled herself doesn't even fully describe what is going on. It's a humility that's extravagant, it's exorbitant, it's excessive, it's outrageous. In fact, it's a humility that's humiliating. At least that's the way Judas saw it, right? And Mary's going to be contrasted with everybody else. I mean, she's contrasted with the celebration. She's contrasted with, with Judas. She's going to be contrasted, really, I think, with those in the rest of the story. I mean, she's drawn in to worship and to sacrifice and, and humility in a, in a way that, that transcends even what she knows. And, and her focus is not herself here. She's abandoned herself. You've got to think about this. She spends all she has on Jesus. The expense of the perfumes more than extravagant. Ridiculous. All she has. Not only does she spend all she has, she sacrifices all that she is by throwing herself on the ground before Jesus. She abandons her, her concern for beauty or decorum or reputation or status. I mean, she is literally going to be mocked by one of Jesus' closest companions. Abandons all she has, all she is, and she abandons everything else she might be or become by abandoning herself to Jesus. No matter what she was before, from now on she'll be known and remembered as the one who literally later life at Jesus' feet. Here's what she knows. None of that was too high a price. That's why six times in the gospel, Jesus is going to say an, a version of, hey, those that, that gain their life, those that, that love their life will lose their life. If you find your life, you lose your life. But whoever loses his life, for my sake, will find it or save it or keep it for eternity. In fact, he's going to say that in verse and the truth is, who wouldn't want to look back from eternity future on a moment in your life where you go, that, 
That was it. That was the moment in my life I abandoned everything for Jesus. Who, was, who doesn't want that memory? I'll tell you this, Judas absolutely missed it, where Mary is going to be forever linked with Jesus in this. Judas is also going to be forever linked. What we find out is this is the event, this is the moment that pushes Judas over the edge. He doesn't get it. He's, Jesus isn't, isn't following his agenda. It is not what he'd hoped for. Judas has missed it. He, he um, um, what was worship, he'll call a waste. Whatever he had and whatever he was before that is defined by this moment. Now he'll go out and make a deal with the, the religious leaders. In fact, uh, John 13, 2 makes it sound like he makes a deal with the devil over this thing. All that, Jesus, all that Judas had, it wasn't enough. He wanted more. And when it looked like Jesus wasn't going to provide that, well, he sold him out. He cut his losses. And then all that Judas was, whatever he was before, oh, listen, we don't know about Judas. If he was a tax collector, if he was a, uh, a fisherman or a, uh, you know, a carpenter or a, you know, a model, we don't know anything about him. Because every time he's referred to, you know what he's called? The one who betrayed Jesus or He's referred to as Judas Iscariot, which some people believe that's where he's from, although nobody knows where that is. Some people take it to mean it, it defined who he became, an assassin, a bandit, a thief. That's his legacy. All that he was, all that he is, all that he was going to be was defined by Jesus. So this is going on. You find that since it's six days before Passover, everybody's coming in for the feast. It was one of the three feasts people came. And in verse 9, when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. They'd never seen a guy been raised from the dead, right? So the chief priest there got wind of this. In verse 10, they make plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. We've got to kill him or this thing's never going to stop. And then later in verse 19, you're going to find, well, no matter what we do, it's not going to stop. And then we're ready for the triumphal entry. Jesus is going to wake up the next morning. Look, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd had come to the feast, and a herd of Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took the branches of palm trees. They went out to meet him. They cried out. This is from uh, Psalm chapter 118. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written in Zechariah chapter 9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a colt, on a donkey's colt. Now, verse 16 says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. See, because there's a, there's a, something wrong with the picture. I mean, it's, they're both prophesied. It, it, it's, it's the coming king. It's, it's Psalm 118. It's, the, it's a, 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 a psalm that the Jews would sing as they were going up to the temple. And it is the fulfillment of what Zechariah has already told us. And yet here they are. They're, they're kind of put together. And one of them is the, is the praise for a king and the waving of palm branches. And, and it was this nationalistic thing. He raised the dead. He can defeat Rome. I mean, this is what they're saying. I mean, the palm branches, they go back to... I mean, they're a feast of tabernacles thing, but they go back to when the Maccabees you know, won the day, and they, 
and they would wave the palm branches for the victory when they got the temple back, and then they scribed it on their coins. And, and it, so the best illustration today, see, this is what they're doing. I, I mean, so I'm, I'm get, you may be offended, fine. It's not the last time this morning you will be. It's like they're waving the America flag. And this is, I'm not making a current political statement, but one that helps us. It, they're saying, we're going to make Jerusalem great again. That's what they're saying. You know what Jesus does in the other Gospels? He weeps over Jerusalem. Going back to Isaiah, Jeremiah's lament over a rebellious people. They're thinking earthly kings going to save them. There's nothing. You know what the rest of Psalm 118 says after he says, Hosanna, um, uh, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know what the next one says? So let's bind up the sacrifice and tie it to the altar. They didn't realize he was the And the disciples, they didn't understand. I mean, so the juxtaposition, here's the king, he's going to make it great, and, and he's going to defeat Rome, and yet he comes in on the back of a, of a donkey. No, the, a baby donkey. It probably looks more like a big dog than a horse. It's not the ride of a king, it's one of humility, one who comes in peace not to conquer they missed the purpose. He raised the dead not to defeat Rome. He raised the dead to defeat death. And he's going to humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, a sacrifice that would be bound to the altar to make atonement for sin. Without the rest of it goes. And in verse 19, you see that the power of Jesus threatens the Pharisees. It's the power of Jesus. It's the influence of Jesus. It's, they've, they've missed it. I mean, here's the thing. His power threatens them, so they rage against Him. They feel as though He's one that's going to suck the life out of them and suck away all, their, all that they have, and He threatens all they have and all they are and all they will be. And yet they missed it. It's not Jesus coming in power. He's coming in humility. He's humbling himself so that he can save them. He didn't come to overthrow them with his power and his strength. He came to overwhelm them with his love. And some of you this morning, I know you're raging against his power. They well, if I, if I trust him, I mean, I can't be a Mary. I have too much to lose. Whatever you're hanging you know, for some believers, their bitterness is the most precious thing they own. It is what gets them up in the morning by God. For some, it's the success they have to have to prove to themselves and everybody around them that they're somebody. Or it's the relationship they're craving to feel worth. Pharisees and they're raging against it. Jesus, I didn't come to overpower you like that. 
I aim to overwhelm you with my love. So what happens here, it's, it's so interesting. John records this in chapter 20. Now those, or verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, some Gentiles, the outsiders. Probably God fears, but it means they hadn't been um, circumcised. They didn't really keep the law, but they believed, you know, that there was a one true God, and it was likely Israel's God. But they didn't have a place in the temple, really. I mean, they had the outer courts, but then there was a wall that kept them from coming all the way to God. And, and so they come to Philip, because Philip, he has a Greek name, probably, and they say, hey, can we see him? I mean, is, is what he's doing, is that, I mean, is that for us too? And there's a sense in which Jesus is going to answer in a way. What Jesus' answer is in the, in the next verse in 23 is, oh yeah, it's time to die. Rejected by my own, rejected by the insiders, sought by the outsiders, the hour has come. That's what he says in verse 23. The hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever, love, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And if anyone serves me, must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And then notice what he says. He's continuing on with the hour to come. Now, now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose I've come. For this hour. Jesus' answer is, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven comes, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Remember your incarnation. Remember your baptism. I glorified my name there. And I will glorify it again. When you are cut off from the land of the living. And in your death, I will maximize my glory. Because I'll raise you again. That's what he's saying. The crowd stood there and they heard it. Some said it was thunder. And others said an angel spoke into him. So much to say about this. Lent begins, the season, the preparation for Easter begins Wednesday. You want a great place to begin a, a meditation? Start here on Wednesday. I want to look at this word into, unless it falls into the earth and dies. What does it mean? So I think Jesus is saying, look, it has to disappear. It has to go into the earth. It has to die or it's going to remain alone. He says, that's me. If I don't die, if I, if I hadn't died, I would have stayed alone. I'd be the only child of God. 
be the only one who knew the Father intimately. Be the only one that ever basked in His presence. But because I died, there's multitudes who can now know Him the way I know Him. So here's the question. What does Jesus fall into? Why is He troubled by the death? Why is, when we get to the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke will tell us He prays and He sweats and, and drops of blood come from His forehead and He agonizes over the cup that He'll drink and my, 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 my soul is troubled. But yet He'll say, not my will, but yours. what's going on? So a lot of people face that. People face heroic deaths. You see it in the movies, you know, the gladiator and William Wallace and, you know, it, it, but what, what has Jesus so troubled here? Well, I'll tell you what he fell into. On the cross he will say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the Bible talks about the everlasting arms of God. And when you come to grips with the cross, what you realize is that Jesus falls into nothing. There's nothing there. The Father's not there. Let me tell you about the time I dropped the chapter. It, it makes Leslie cringe when I tell the story. We were on a family walk around the old Andy Woods in our neighborhood. And she was in a stroller. Not a good stroller, an umbrella stroller. And the sidewalk is on a hill, you know, and it's just getting sloped down. And I told Les, I said, hey, why don't you get down to the bottom of the hill and I'll, um, I'll push the stroller down and it'll be like a ride for Catherine, you know, she can just so it turns out, strollers aren't really made for that. I didn't know it then. I do know it now. So what happens is, here she is, strapped in. She's a little baby. She hopefully is pre-consciousness. Um, and I don't just push it. I think, oh, this would be more fun if I take a running start. And I don't know. So I do. And it goes. Turns out those front wheels wobble and the back wheels wobble and... Um, and, and they don't—they don't really roll over rocks either. And there she goes, and I let her—I let her go. And I couldn't catch her. And I almost probably killed her. This is what's happening: the eternal Father of the eternal Son. Let's him go. He fell into spiritual apartness, complete separation. He fell into what must have been torment. I mean, if we, as those created in the image of God, were built for the presence of God and to be away from the presence of God is utter loss, imagine one who is God, who loses the presence of God. But Paul will write that he who knew no sin became sin. That 
you might become the righteousness of God. He did not come to overpower you. He came to overwhelm you. Jesus tells him, the voice you heard, it wasn't for me. It was for you. The ruler of the world is going to be cast out when all this goes down. John begins to comment then in verse 37. Look what he says. Though he'd done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who's believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. And Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of it. You know whose glory he saw? Jesus. You know when he saw it? It's Isaiah chapter 6. He'd been preaching for five chapters. He'd been telling the people, listen, you're rebellious. You're rebelling against God. And then God gives him a couple of visions. And he says the visions. And the visions are this. This place is going to be a wasteland. We were like the vineyard. We we were like God's vineyard. and, and, And he planted us and cared for us. And you know what grew up? Nothing. He's going to tear down the walls. He's going to let the vineyard be ravished. And he's, he's lamenting and, he's, and, he, and he can't believe he's having these visions and he's telling the leadership as though, you know, you, there, there may be time still to respond. So you get to chapter 6 and you hear the words when in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord Lord God Almighty, high and lifted up. And part of me thinks, and there are people that have different thoughts about it, but it's Uzziah dies, and it's in that year because it may be that Isaiah had still held out hope that a king like Uzziah might rally the people, might be a savior, might turn their hearts. But it wasn't. There was nothing Uzziah or any other earthly king or one of man could do. And so when he sees him, do you know what he does? Uzziah dies. Isaiah sees him, and his life goes from chaos to clarity, from confusion to confession and worship. He sees God rightly, and then he sees himself rightly. Woe is me, for I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord God Almighty. The angel comes down and takes a tongue and puts it on his lips and atones for him. And all that was chaos and all that was confusion becomes absolutely clear, and God says, got a message, who shall I send? And Isaiah says, send me. I'll do it. 
says, okay, here's the message. It's the most depressing call to ministry anyone's ever received. You're going to go and preach and nobody's going to listen. You're going to go announce that there actually can be hope, that there is a hope coming, and you will be scorned. And Isaiah says, well, okay, um, how long? Until when you look around, everything is destroyed. That's how long. But Isaiah knows, and God tells him, as Jeremiah laments, that even in the midst of that, you call, I called on your name, Jeremiah will say, in the midst of all the ruin. I called on your name, Lord, from the depths of the pit, and you heard my plea. You came near whenever I called you, and you said, Do not be afraid. And you redeemed my life. And that's all any of us ever have to do. To call on the name of the Lord. And confusion and chaos go to clarity. The old is gone and the new will come. Isaiah knows the hope that will come. He will write about it in chapters 52 and 53 and make reference to it along the way of one who will be born. A sign will come. That sign will be one that's named. His name will be God with us. Emmanuel. And he'll be born of a virgin, he tells them. And we find out more of the story in Isaiah 53. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look upon him. No appearance that we should desire of him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. Despised. He didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses. He carried our pains. We talked about him as though he was stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion and crushed because of our iniquity. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we're healed by his wounds. John saying, He's here. And that happened in six days. An illustration of a man, he, not too many years ago, on a river trip in Maine. And he was on a raft and he saw a dam coming up by the river. He hadn't been familiar with it, but he thought he could navigate it. He doesn't navigate it. He goes over the dam, overturns, falls in the water. There's a backwash. The dam creates this whirlpool that's trying to suck him in and he keeps trying to swim out of it. He keeps trying to swim downstream but he's in great danger. The water's cold and, and, he, and, he, and he, people were watching. They were up away watching and they couldn't do anything about it and the guy struggling and struggling and struggling and he couldn't break free from it. And then what happens is hypothermia takes over and 
so draw his la he draws his last breath, he dies, and at that moment he gets sucked into the whirlpool that he's been fighting against. Well, the observers watched, and in less than five seconds, that whirlpool shot him out ten yards down the stream, where it was calm and he could easily swam ashore. And it's what the Pharisees are doing what the people in Isaiah's day are doing, and Jeremiah's day, and Malachi's day, and today, is you're fighting against that, that, that in some ways it, it brings your death. It, you have to submit totally to it. You have to be sucked into it, into what you think will harm you and, 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 and take everything from you to, to then be thrown out into safety. We have to, like a grain of wheat, go down into the watery grave to find a new life. So you have to hate your life to find it. You have to lose your life to discover it. You're here this morning and you're raging against Him. Gripping on to those things that you think are going to save you. And you're missing why He came. He ends and talks to believers and unbelievers. Whoever believes in me. You believe not in me. You believe in the one that sent me. You see me. You see Him. I'm the light of the world step out of darkness into light. If you don't, listen, if you don't believe in me, I didn't come here to be your judge. My very presence judges you. My very words judge you. And what he's saying is, listen, there's a judgment coming. And I would say it this way to you. Your judgment either has already come or it will come. I talk about it like this. There are three worldwide judgments. The first one we find in Genesis. God floods the earth. He pours His wrath out on the planet and destroys mankind because of sin, saving one family. There are two other worldwide judgments where His wrath is poured out in judgment against sinners. The last one you find in Revelation chapter 20 where He raises the dead stands them before him and judges them. If your name's written in the book of life, he looks at you and says, well done, good and faithful servant. And if it's not written in that book, then the other books are opened up. And you give an account for your life. And you will now be judged. His wrath will be poured out on you. Your judgment either has come in Jesus, which was a worldwide judgment, God pouring out His wrath against the sin of humanity. And Jesus becomes the object of His wrath, so you don't have to. Following Christ means abandoning your pride. Like Mary, you owe me nothing. I owe you everything. You owe me nothing. I owe you everything. And yet, 
you gave up everything. Your life's either in chaos this morning, I think, and you feel it, down in you. Or you know that He is preeminent over all things. That's what He says in Colossians. Jesus is preeminent over all things, over all creation. And you know why He can call creation the world, He can call it the cosmos, and not chaos? Genesis 1, he spoke into it and said, let there be light. And he could speak into your chaos and your life and said, let there be light. Light. I'll end with this, and then we're going to take communion. A guy named Sir Isaac Watts lived in the 1700s. He was brilliant. Tell you a little bit about him. By the age of four, he had mastered Latin. By the age of nine, he mastered Greek took him till 11 to master French, but then by the age of 13, he had mastered Hebrew. He was, he was brilliant. Went to Oxford and Cambridge, then went on to a private academy. Graduated with all of his honors and all of his degrees. And before the age of 20, spent five years as a tutor, which is what you did. And then in 1702, he takes the position of leadership at a very large and influential church. He was a great preacher at the time. There were high hopes for Isaac Watts. That was 1702. The very next year, he became the pastor. Of, uh, the, the very next year after becoming the pastor, he fell sick, and they didn't know what was wrong with him. There wasn't anything physical they could point to. If it were today, it would have been probably clinical, major was hospitalized and he was never really the same after that it ended up affecting his health he became a, a frail man a shadow of what he used to be he was only 5 foot tall but he lost so much weight that you, the caricature of him was he had this enormous head because his body had almost all but wasted away when they painted him, they painted him in these gowns, these robes, so that they would make him look bigger than he actually was. But we know of his frailty because of the woman that he loved more than life itself, Elizabeth Singer. And he proposed marriage to her, and she rejected him. And later she said, though she loved the jewel, she could not admire the casket, which contained it. He was repulsive. And everything in watch could have said, you know what, that's fine, forget you. And to save himself through his intellect and his intelligence and his, his prowess in academia. But he doesn't, you know what he does? Spends the rest of his life writing poems and hymns because he said he looked around the church in his greatest need and he saw people singing with dullness. He said, we can do better than that. And he began to write hymns. And one hymn he wrote, And I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. 
My richest gain, I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I boast. Save in death of Christ my God all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them. dying crimson like a robe spread o'er his body on the tree then I am dead to all the globe and the globe is dead to me and then notice this where the whole realm of nature lies that would be a present far too small love so amazing so divine demands my soul my life, my all. Watch as a man who knew what it was to have his chaos and confusion turn to confession and worship. I'll ask the question John would ask you this morning. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And in believing that, you have eternal Life. Are you trying to save yourself? Or will you be saved this morning by God's grace through faith and the only one that can save you? The men that are going to help me with communion this morning come forward. I'm going to pray for us. If you'll bow your heads, I'll tell you that this table is open if you're a believer in Christ by grace through faith nothing else then we invite you to share in this we haven't come this morning to in our own strength or our own merit or anything we did we didn't come here this morning to say yeah to remember all the things that we've done to be here we come this morning to remember what Christ has done and the bread and the juice are symbols of God becoming man and dwelling among us and then dying the death we deserve. Shedding his blood to pay for our sin. If you don't believe that this morning, we're glad you're here. We ask you to refrain from this and just watch us this morning as we worship. Father, we pray that you would do what only you could do in our hearts.